Welcome to Fireside Chats with Reverend Iron Kim, hosted by me, Abby, and produced by Grace Presbyterian Church of Silicon Valley. Good to see you, Abby. How are you? You too. Uh, I'm good. You and I have been texting a lot about our different book lists. Iron and I have been doing a lot of reading, folks, along with the rest of Grace staff. Iron, tell us some books you've read lately. Well, I like the book I'm going to do my book club on, right? One Blood, John Perkins, um, that's coming up. But I've been trying to get my head around some of the more recent bibliography on these issues of race. How to be an anti-racist. Yep. White Fragility. D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. And what is this last one that you and I were talking about? Is it Between? Between the World, the world and Me. Yes, that's it. Between the World and Me, which, as I shared with you, has been by far my favorite out of the three because it's beautifully written. Iron and I have been reading a ton and texting a ton about our current cultural moment. We've been talking a lot about the ideas in these books, and that has inspired the podcast that's coming up. So, Iron, what's our theme today? You know, um, the question came up in my mind, Abby, as I've been reading those books and other articles. How do you relate to those who disagree with you? What does Christianity have to say about those who we see as not enough, not woke enough, not anti-racist enough, those who demand you wear a mask, those who refuse to wear a mask. I mean, is there a different path than simply canceling people out from our lives? Because that seems to be one of the main ways our culture is relating to people who disagree with you. Mm -hmm. Yep, we're in a very polarized moment. I think everybody's been observing that since 2016 or before. It's amazing. My Instagram feed is probably 50% now opinions about racial justice or opinions about masks. And I have seen many things like unfriend me if, don't follow me if. Cancel culture is definitely a real thing. It is a force to be reckoned with. It is here. And that's kind of what we would like to talk about today. How as Christians do we think about cancel culture? Or how as Christians do we think about relating with people who disagree with us? And to be clear, we're not talking about things like abuse or harm or, you know, slurs. Obviously, that's not something we're saying you need to be around or need to listen to. So let's just start off by saying don't hear what we're not saying. Yes, I think that's important because uh, I don't want you to cancel us out before this podcast even gets going here. But (laughs) we're not saying there isn't a right or wrong or good or evil or oppressor and victim in the world. The Bible clearly addresses things like injustice, racism, oppression. But what I do want to address is this, like in order to cancel someone, I think something needs to happen inside of us where we almost have to dehumanize those people who disagree with us. And there's something there that in our cultural moment is like, Uh, It feels powerful. It feels effective. It feels like you're doing something. But on the other hand, I wonder if we need to take a step back and consider, hey, is this actually harmful for our society and our community? How do we, you know, have a conversation with someone who's not going to be on the same page with us? I think as human beings, we have this tendency to caricaturize our opponents, people who disagree with us. And Most of the year, I swim along and that's just fine. But you know where I really feel at iron is, say, Thanksgiving dinner. When I'm with my relatives, many different political views represented, many different social views represented. 
And it becomes so much harder for me to caricaturize people on the opposite side of an issue when they're literally my family members. And that's when I notice how much I'm doing that all the time because it's so hard to break through that impulse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's hard when those you are closest to are the ones you disagree with. It feels like life and death and there's lots of emotions around it. And that's living life in the church together because we have lots of different kinds of issues, right? A strong, healthy church is going to be very pluralistic over many things. Everything but Jesus Christ, we might say. We would expect right. to see every view represented outside of You would scripture. hope so. Yeah. Yeah, you would hope so. And uh, it would be a place where people with different perspectives and strategies and uh, approaches to life are able to come together because they share the one thing that matters most, which is life in Jesus. So. How do we relate to one another as we disagree? Whether it's about, should the police be defunded? Is the church doing enough to combat racism? Should monuments be torn down and institutions renamed to repudiate racist history? How about, should we meet in person right now as a community group? That could get a lot of discussion going right now, depending on how you feel about the virus. And I think oftentimes, if you're not doing enough, if you're not on my side, if you're on the other side of the debate, oftentimes we get canceled out, we're cut off, and yet the question remains for someone who's a Christian, how do you remain united and one and still have all these different opinions? It's a really pressing issue. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all known someone from the church who had some view that we disagreed with. It doesn't really matter what it is. And you have to still be in family with this person. It's not different from the Thanksgiving table. The communion table is much the same. Let's say someone's asking you, are you a racist or an anti-racist? The question is asking, are you performing well enough? Are you doing enough? Because if you're not, then you're a racist. This is kind of Ibram Kendi's book. If you are not doing enough, then we have to label you as racist, and then you're stuck in that realm. And how do you continue to have a relationship with someone when you're painted as just a bad person? How do you actually have dialogue? How do you have community around those kinds of issues? Yeah, um, it's really been hard for me to engage with both of these dialogues simultaneously, because... I think some of my instincts are, well, either you're racist or anti-racist. And then I realized, well, that, that sounds a little bit like sheep and goats or something. Like mm -hmm. that sounds a little bit like there's no redemption possible. So I would love to talk more about this. How can we keep from viewing people in two camps? I don't think that's what Kendi's advocating for, really. He's sort of talking more about a racist and anti-racist force in the world that you're a part of at different times. But Certainly, we simplify it down to individual people, good person, bad person, good person, bad person. Right, right. And that's what it's going to feel like, even though we're talking about powers and, let's say, principalities and structures of injustice or racism. But when you're the one having to uh, consider, am I doing something that's anti-racist versus racist, it can't but help feel personal. Yeah. Or even right now with, you know, the mask debates, are you a mask wearer or a not mask wearer? Are you a beachgoer right. or a not beachgoer? Did you have a birthday party? Did you have a Zoom party? Everything is very black and white at the moment. So, okay, talk to me as a pastor. How does this influence your work? Well, I think it's, it's hard for people sometimes to get a handle on this. But, you know, as a pastor, you get to hear many concerns from congregants because they are passionate about a cause or an issue that God's put on their heart 
and they often wish the church was more engaged. So, for instance, someone may come and say, I really have a heart for what God has shown me in the Bible about poverty. So what are we doing as a church to fight poverty? Or I wish we were more ethnically diverse. Are we doing enough? What can we do? Are we doing enough to speak out against pornography, human sex trafficking? Because that's such a huge deal to me. How about those who are in the military? I notice our church never acknowledges those folks. Can the church join in in a pro-life protest? All of these kinds of things show up because people are seeing something they're passionate about from the Bible, and they want the church to engage. The subtext is, the church is not doing enough. Whether they intend it or not, oftentimes a little bit of judgmentalism can come out in that, depending on how those conversations come across. They're wanting to say, hey, I've become very aware of these things, but other brothers and sisters aren't as theologically aware about these topics. And then people are very, very frustrated. I mean, Iron's being really gracious here because I think I personally have come to him about maybe half of the things on that list saying like, Iron, get it together. Man, we need to be doing something. Have you read this? Have you seen this? Have you read this book, heard this podcast? Let's go, Grace Prez. And, you know, I have to admit, I can laugh at myself now. And especially in college, oh my gosh, Iron, I was a nightmare for campus ministry staff. I had so many causes. I wanted so many immediate, wide-sweeping changes. And yet... There was so much self-righteousness in that for me. I thought I was the lone crusader for change, for bringing redemption in the church. Joke, the lone crusader is Jesus. He already came. He is already advocating for all of these causes. And unfortunately, it's just often going to be slower than I want. I want to lead a movement. He's leading a movement. It's just a slower movement than I would hope for. Yeah, and you can see how all of those... Dynamics. And by the way, I didn't want to call you out on the podcast. Very friendly but, of you. How nice. So considerate. But at the same time, like we also recognize this actually causes friction in the church because you're saying, hey, how come you don't care about these things to the same degree I do? You're not really following Jesus in this area. You're only worried about that area. Oftentimes we can get into that mindset. To be clear, it's not that the Bible isn't pro all of these causes or doesn't want to give honor where honor is due, justice where justice is due. It's just how often are we using it for our own self-righteousness versus for glorifying Jesus's kingdom? You know, that, that's the real question, I think, at the heart of this. The Bible actually has a lot to say about these types of things, theological issues, social issues, things we're passionate about. And that is the heart of it. So if that's the case... How is the church supposed to be the church representing the unity that Jesus brings, right? Because oftentimes we look at our brothers and sisters or at the church and feel like it's just not enough. They're just not doing enough. And I am so frustrated. I like these things about this church, but they're not doing this right. And he or she doesn't think in the same way as I do about this. I don't want to be in a community group with this person. You you can have all those kinds of reactions around this. Yeah. Yeah. So. How does that play out or where has that played out in the church historically? Because the hard thing about the church is it's not like I can independently start my own church. You know, I can't create a group of people that agrees perfectly with everything I want, that does everything I think we should do. The reality is Jesus has stuck us with each other for better or for worse, richer or poorer. How does this play out? And I think this is where the Bible does have uh, much to add in this. Because you remember those debates in the New Testament about 
meet. In particular, the church in Rome, they had a major conflict about what you could or could not eat. And the question centered around whether you could eat meat that was not butchered to kosher standards. You see? So you had these Gentile Christians, Gentiles who ate regular non-kosher food all their life. To them, it didn't matter. It meant nothing. The kosher law didn't apply. So Paul describes that group as the strong in faith and the Jewish Christians who chose to eat vegetables because of their desire to eat kosher only, the weak Christians. And the strong would agree with Paul that a Christian could eat anything because we know that's what the scripture says. You go to Acts 10, there's that wonderful image of this giant picnic blanket coming down from the heavens as Peter's praying and God tells him, hey, none of this is defiled. You can kill and eat. And what is meant by the weak in this uh, passage is that it's not that they were weak in their devotion to Jesus. They were weak in the sense that they had not worked out the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus in this particular area of life, right? And so Paul is talking to these groups because they're, dis- they're in heated disagreement about whether you can or cannot eat meat. And what's so interesting about this is if I think about these Jewish Christians who are abstaining, following these really careful eating laws, and then the Gentile Christians who are having a free-for-all, I'm sure the Jewish Christians felt that they were the stronger in faith, in fact, because they were doing the much harder thing. They were doing the righteous thing, the good thing. And these Gentiles don't seem to be taking this all that seriously. So I'm sure they imagined they were the strong ones. But what's fascinating to me about this is Paul is saying the group that was doing a little bit less, they were stronger in their faith because they were resting on Jesus rather than their own righteousness. While the Jewish Christians kind of were trying to play both games at once. They wanted their own righteousness. They wanted to keep kosher to keep fulfilling the law. And then they also wanted Jesus. But it was kind of Jesus plus. I can see that pattern playing out in my own life. I think if I'm doing the harder thing, I am more righteous than the person doing the easier thing all the time. Yeah, and you can see this dynamic in a social setting between these folks, right? It almost feels like the mask thing or about whether churches should open up to worship right now, which is kind of a raging debate. But listen to how Paul gives some practical advice in the beginning of Romans 15. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul is doing something remarkable because he is prioritizing unity over being right or getting our way. And that, to me, is really crucial to understanding how to relate to one another. Because he's saying, those who are strong, you should lay aside your rights out of love for your brother and sister. For the sake of unity. I don't know how that strikes you, but it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong in this right now. Or I should say, it doesn't matter if you are actually correct theologically. Rather than exclude, demonize, or other your brothers and sister, or cancel them out because they don't see what you see, there's a call to embrace and to welcome. And it's a very different way of using power 
than what is described in other areas where you should be right and you should assert that right. So let me let me make sure I understand the scenario here. So Paul agrees with the people who are eating bacon. He's like, yeah, that's totally fine. However, he's saying, okay, technically you're right, but you still have to live in community with these people who don't quite get it yet. So be gracious with them. He's calling on the people who are right to be gracious rather than calling only on the people who are theologically a little weaker to step it up. That's exactly what's going on here. It's a very different way rather than saying, all right, we'll give you three more Bible studies. Let's see if you can figure it out. You know, Paul doesn't go that route, but rather he asks those who are strong to say, hey, for the sake of community and unity, would you consider bearing with the failings of the weak? Don't do whatever you feel like doing, even though you have every right to do it. Don't put bacon in the casserole at the church picnic. Just chill out a little bit. Give them some time. They'll get there eventually. I get that. And so I can see exactly how that would play out in our moment right now, because it's true. If I hear something that sounds maybe a little racist to me in a Bible study, or perhaps it's just unenlightened, maybe it's not the right language. It's not quite what I'm used to from my education. It doesn't strike the ear the right way. I'm very prone to turn a cold shoulder to that person or want to at least find a way to get out of the conversation quickly. But really, I don't know that that helps anyone. Like, I think what is more helpful is to stay in that conversation, to welcome one another rather than to block one another. Yeah. And how do you remain engaged and recognize there's unity, there's growth? I'm going to figure out how I can move towards you. I'm going to use even my rights, lay those things aside for the sake of unity and for your well-being. It's just very other-centric. And this is at the heart of Christian life because this is what Jesus does for us, right? He sets aside his rights. He sets aside his power. He serves. He welcomes. He's patient. You know, all of those things that are embedded in the gospel, it's supposed to show up in the life of a Christian community. And that, to me, is very powerful. And you think about how this example played out over the history of the church. Essentially, people had to trust the Holy Spirit to reveal God's kingdom, which in God's kingdom, bacon, fortunately, is welcome. It's interesting that over the history of the church, the Jewish church and the Gentile church did successfully become one church. If they had kicked out everybody who you know, was keeping kosher, we would have lost out on half of our heritage if you had just drawn a hard line. And yet the Holy Spirit over time asserted the truth of God's word, which is that we're free to take of all foods. That's just really cool that people were able to trust the spirit. People were able to pray through this. And over time, God's church became unified and started moving in the right direction. And I think this is the only path forward. And, you know, let me talk to you a little bit about just my personal experience. I've had to work through some of these things uh, over the years professionally as a Korean-American pastor, as an Asian-American who has been a minority, a person of color in several churches that have been predominantly white. You know, you have these moments when you realize even some of your colleagues or congregants just don't get it and they say stuff. I'll give you one. Um, years ago, both of these were from when I was in San Francisco, Abby, but I'll, I'll start with one. In a sermon, I shared about a racist experience I had on the streets of San Francisco where I was living at the time, and it involved racial slurs hurled at me. And I describe this assailant, okay? It's not the first time this has happened to me, and nor will it be the last. 
But I decided to incorporate the story into my sermon that week because I was so angry. And I knew it was going to make the church really, really uncomfortable because you generally don't have lots of people share about stuff like this. So after the sermon, one person came up to me and said, and this is someone from the congregation, you know, uh, Pastor Iron, you know, not everyone from the South is racist. It was the first comment. That was the first thing they said to me. It wasn't, hey, I am so sorry that happened to you. But it was... So I didn't even say they were from the South. They just kind of ascertained that or, you know, uh, got there on their own. But it was just one of those moments I was like, wow, you, you're just not getting me on this. What it felt like that day when someone's just, you know, yelling out stuff like that to you. So I just thought that was really interesting that here's someone in my congregation who I know, um, and it's not a stranger. Because I had a line that day, I remember several people wanted to say something. All the Asian people were like, oh, thank you for sharing that. I know what that feels like. And you had this <laughs> other person <laughs> and a couple other white people who had a bone to pick about that because it made them feel uncomfortable. You know, that, yeah, this one. I, and I get it. I get it. And I'll share with you how uh, I'm processing that. I mean, I had one other occasion when, again, I was in San Francisco, one of the staff persons, one of my colleagues who's white, um, who really didn't talk about a whole lot of race stuff, but all of a sudden decided to ask me, this was around Chinese New Year, hey, I'm doing the prayers of the people this week. Should I incorporate Chinese New Year into my prayer? (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) This person was dead serious. They really meant it and they were sincere. And I don't think there was a term coined yet uh, that sounded like virtue signaling, because that's what I was thinking. That's the term I would put to it right now. Yeah. Because they're trying to relate to the Asian Americans in the church and in the community. And the occasion came up because it was Chinese New Year. And here's my opportunity to let me make some connection in the prayer so people know I understand you. And I talked them out of it. But nevertheless, it was one of those other moments of, okay, this is kind of funny. And all at the same time, I am so appreciative of your desire and effort to try to connect with the congregation. Yeah, You know what I'm saying, Abby? Yeah, totally. I mean, especially the second white person in your stories, I can completely see myself doing that. Like super well-meaning, super missing the point. And then what's weird about it is like, this guy has never talked to you about being Asian probably doesn't know a lot of Asian people from what you're saying. And yet when Chinese New Year comes around, he has this weird feeling in the back of his mind, like, is this the day I should start talking about this? And I totally get it. Like, especially as a teacher, a white teacher who often works with communities of color, like that's my background. I definitely have been that teacher that's like, oh, it's Dio de los Muertos. Like, let's all talk about that. And the kids are looking at me like, you definitely have never celebrated this. Or I remember one year I worked for a white woman, primarily Latino students or Latinx students, and she spoke with a Spanish accent. And I just remember thinking like, have I totally missed something? But she just kind of had picked up an accent that implied she was bilingual or from Mexico, like many of our students were. And it was so funny to me. And yet I can totally Uh. see myself doing that. 
So, okay, tell me, what are your reactions to these things? I'm identifying with the white person in this scenario and just like, heaven help us. So what do you think, Iron? Okay, and I want to say I probably have done this myself a gazillion times in different ways in different places, especially when I lived abroad. You know, and we would describe these small things as maybe microaggressions today, right? Yeah, we yeah, may, that's the word. Mm -hmm, totally. You know, um, but what do I do? Do I exclude these people for their transgression and for not being woke enough? I mean, you know, they're well-meaning. Um, there is something taking place. God is showing them something which I'm wanting to celebrate. And they're saying, hey, I'm starting to think differently. I'm starting to deal with my emotions. But I can't cut them out because what I see is them trying and I have an obligation to bear with one another. I think that's one of the things Paul is saying in Romans 15. How do we build up our neighbor? How do we welcome one another? How do we seek unity? Even as this is sort of awkward and maybe a little bit offensive, but God could be at work in this in a remarkable way in someone's life too. That's how I'm thinking about it because I don't know what else you do because the other option is you're just insensitive. You're never going to change. I'm just going to cut you off. And I mean, that's a hard thing to experience too for people who are cut out. To be clear, bear with one another doesn't mean put up with just anything. It doesn't mean that. No. It also doesn't mean like turn around and walk away. It doesn't mean that. So figuring out what bearing with one another looks like, I mean, that can vary a lot situation to situation. But I know that I'm really grateful for people over the years who have helped me understand some of the microaggressions I've committed. Uh, and, you know, there may be some on this podcast. I don't know. Send me an email. Like, it, it's helpful because that's the bearing with is the communicating, the continuing to communicate about it. Yeah. And I think that piece, again, goes back to this idea is you're trying to preserve the relationship. This mm. is not about just right or wrong, right answer, wrong answer, right reaction, wrong reaction. But it's about, hey, we are trying to grow together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're trying to learn from each other. May God actually give an opportunity for both of us to change in this dialogue and relationship. There's something tenacious about it. And if you see the intent is not to just be harmful, the impact might have been uh, difficult for me, but at the same time, I'm seeing someone who's making an effort. I'm like, I want that person to grow. I want that person to be in relationship with me so we can grow together. I want to learn from them. And you can't just sit there and assume the worst about them, but you work toward reconciliation. How do we make our relationship in such a way that it begins to reflect the relationship Jesus has with us. If you talk about microaggressions, how many small microaggressions are we having toward Jesus and the cross all the time, yet he continues to love us? You know, mm -hmm. if you start using those categories on that relationship with Jesus, if Jesus had to cut us out every time we did something wrong, we have no hope, Abby. And as a white person listening to you, I understand that this is a big burden, you know, to ask people to be willing to communicate in the face of ignorance, you know, and nobody is like Christ, right? So he is capable of endless mercy and bountiful bearing with, and we're capable of somewhat less. <laughs> so that's kind of a practical constraint on this bearing with. Talking about maintaining relationships, bearing with, sticking with, where else do we see this in scripture? Are there any parting thoughts you would leave us with on what this can actually look like? 
I really love Jesus's parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13. It's only four verses. You can go look this up yourself. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And when he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I think this is a profound, profound little parable because you show up and there's not fruit in this person's life. And what is our reaction? Cancel it. Cut it down. Get rid of it. Why is it going to use up the ground? I don't get you. Let's cancel him. Cancel her. There's not enough time to deal with trying to fix you up. So let me just replace you in my life. I'm going to exclude you. It's always easier to cut a person out than to embrace and to work. Rather, what happens? They wait. They wait, they put on manure, of all things, and they want to see whether the vine is going to bear fruit. And I have to tell you, Abby, it's so much easier sometimes, even as a pastor, when you get people who are very difficult, sometimes they really oppose you, and it's easier to feel like, I want to cut them out of your life, versus continue to minister out of love for this person. And this parable has always kind of brought me back to, no, no, no. If Jesus treated me in that way, I'd be in trouble. Our call as Christians is to continue to bear with one another, to be patient rather than to cut them out as our first instinct. Mm -hmm. This is important. I'm thinking about, you know, specific people in my life where I do feel that urge to just fail. They don't seem to see things the way I see them. And yet I can also think of transformation that's come year over year in small creeping growth, fig tree kind of growth on a number of these issues. And so I guess I'm hopeful when I hear this story that fig trees can grow. You never know which season will be the season. This is centering again on relationship, embracing, welcoming, being patient, waiting for someone to bear fruit and flourish. It really begins to mimic God's patient love, seeking change in us as the gospels at work, that we would become more and more like Jesus, that we would be holy, that we would be gracious that we would be truthful, that we would be kind, and we would seek justice. I think that would really start to impact the world and let people see the glory of the gospel at work in a community. It, it can be really beautiful. Yeah, I would love to see that happen at our church. And in small ways, I can already see that happening. It would be a really beautiful picture and a beautiful day if we could do this. So, Iron, aside from begging God for his level of patience with one another— any other resources, anything you'd like to leave folks with? Okay, this is a book that ends up in the top five list Whoa. for me of all time. Top five. Um, top five. It's a little bit more academic and scholarly, but it's a book called Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian, and this book is still so pertinent, especially in the debate today. I think this really fleshes out so much of what I've been trying to say here at a much more detailed level. Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf. 
thank you for bearing with us and thank you for not cutting us down or canceling us by making it to the end of the podcast. We are very proud. Catch you later, Iron. Bye, Abby. Talk to you soon. 